You are listening to the Therefore I Geek podcast, episode 82. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Therefore I Geek. I'm Andrew. I'm the dude. And today we're going to be talking Westworld. Uh, specifically, we're starting with the 1973 film, and then we're going to transition into talking about the, well, I guess, the 2016 HBO series that will be premiering, what is it, a week from the today when we're recording? October 2nd, yeah. So we, we, we've both just watched the, the feature film from 1973, written and directed by Michael Crichton. I didn't Jurassic re- Park fame, uh, Sphere fame. So I, I was looking at his at his um, Wikipedia p- page. Yeah. He had basically nine films, like nine of his books in a row turn into films. So he wrote. I mean, he wrote a number of film, a number of books under a, a, a pen name, starting back in '66. But in books under his own name, in nineteen starting in '72 and going all the way to '95, nine books in a row: The Terminal Man, The Great Train Robbery, Eaters of the Dead, Congo Sphere, Jurassic Park, Rising Sun, Disclosure, and The Lost World. I remember Congo. <laughs> I, I like Congo. It's not good, but I like it. Oh, no, it's it's not. It's really ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. Also, I always forget until I watch the, the early scenes of it is that. Oh, crap. I'm blanking on the actor's name. The guy from Evil Dead. Bruce Campbell. Yeah, Bruce Campbell's in it for about a minute and a half. Like in the very beginning, right? Doesn't he like yep. die or something? Yeah. You know who's also in Congo? For those who are big fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000, uh, one of the best episodes of that show is where they made fun of the movie Mitchell with Joe Don Baker. Yep. And Joe Don Baker is in Congo. Nice. He's like the guy in the control room. He's the one who's all about like getting the... Uh, oh, okay. Getting the, getting the diamond. Yeah, he's like all about that. Yep. That's him. Yeah, I mean... Crichton, Crichton was a, a big, big novelist, I guess, throughout the 80s and 90s. And then, like, all of a sudden, just everyone started making his making his movies. I guess I, I would have to say, like, Jurassic Park was the one that kind of put him on the, on the map as far as, like, adaptations are concerned. Because I just remember after Jurassic Park, then every single Michael Crichton book was being adapted. And it was, like, from the author of Jurassic Park. Yeah, although at the same time, I mean, looking at the numbers, five of his books, five of the books were written before that, or like five of them were before that. Congo, Sphere, Eaters of the Dead, Great Train, Robbie, and Terminal Man, and mm-hmm. at least two of those movies were before Jurassic Park. Well, Sphere was definitely after Jurassic Park. I think Congo might have been at the same time. Terminal Man, uh, Great Train, Robbery, and Andromeda Strain were all before Right. Yeah, he's one of those people. I was thinking about it, kind of when we were kids. It was kind of like the the big time for what they what they call thrillers in terms of like mm-hmm. novels, and and between John Crichton and Tom Clancy were kind of the, the kings of that. Would you add Robert Patterson to that too, or is he less of a thriller guy? I was thinking Patterson and maybe John Grisham. Grisham definitely, yeah. But like those are like. Those were like the, the, the pillars of that, that genre. 
And I mean, I've read I've read a lot of the John Crichton books, and I really enjoyed them. And I always forget that he he wrote and directed. I mean, Michael yes, Michael Crichton. I don't know where I was going with that one. Uh, no, but I always forget that he also wrote and directed Westworld. Right. Which I thought was pretty cool. It's yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's very 1970s, very of its time. If you look at the IMDb page for it, you know, it's it at the top it's like people who had liked this also liked and it's like Logan's Run, Omega Man, Soylent Green, Rollerball and um, Andromeda Strain and I'm just like yeah, those are all like really similar kind of films that very similar feel it's kind of the 1970s not happy science fiction no well i mean like a lot of that has to do with like the watergate stuff and and the post-vietnam war era is like a lot of those early 70s mid-70s science fiction and thrillers had were, were super super pessimistic about the future very technophobic and a lot of it i think has to do with just where the country was in the 70s it was it was not a happy time oh no absolutely um if you watch the star wars documentary uh, galaxy of dreams it actually talks about the feel of, of science fiction films of this time and, and it's, it's exactly what you said it's it's the post watergate post vietnam uh feeling now we should point out that Westworld was actually released pre-Richard, pre-Nixon resignation. It was released in 73. So Watergate was just kind of just getting started. Well, yeah, I mean, the Watergate scandal, if if I remember correctly, started either right before the election or right after the 1972 election. And that was like a multi-year, you know, process where it was just, you had Woodward and Bernstein doing their thing, and then you had Cronkite doing his thing. That was an ongoing. That was an ongoing deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for when Woodward and Bernstein published. Because I feel like it started like right after he got elected. Nixon got elected in '72, because he resigns two years later, like in '74. I believe it was. I thought it was '75, but. Well, you double check that. I, I always felt like it happened really quick. But I mean, nevertheless, the point being that there was there was just widespread pessimism. You're right. Going August, around he, he resigned August, thought, August of 74. Yeah, that's what I thought. So I, let's just go over the, the the basic plot is you've got an amusement park. That shows you three basic historical time periods, you've got Roman world medieval world and western world and patrons to this amusement park can pick one of the worlds they want to go to and stay almost like as if it's a resort hotel and it's like you know a thousand dollars a day and it's set in some nondescript future we don't know when this is right but we just assume that it's the future because of the the robot technology and the kind of interesting plane they fly in on yeah. Nevertheless, they use gigantic, you know, computers and reel to reel. So they haven't oh, yeah. like they haven't quite they fake some of it. But but, you know, those computers were advanced to them. And the basic plot is you can live in this world and you've got these two guys uh, to assume at first I thought they were strangers who didn't like each other. And then later on, it's it's found out that their friends played by um, James Brolin. 
I believe it's John Blaine, and then John Blaine, and another guy who um, Richard Benjamin, who plays Peter Martin. Peter Martin, who is kind of the protagonist, and he's we finally learn that he's had a divorce, so he's kind of like this is his getaway with his buddy. Yeah, and basically it's not, it's she, not, she's taking him to the cleaners. Right, and because this is in the age where now uh, you've got like the no fault divorce laws are coming into effect now, and and. Uh, so people are getting divorced, and she's taking them to the cleaners, and he, they're just trying to have like this guy's week where they can just get away from reality. Yep. But I always felt that was funny because it was never really kind of played into in the film. Because at first I thought these guys were strangers and didn't like each other. Right. And then it turns out, oh, they're actually buddies. Well, and, and part of where that comes from is this: the film in general is fairly dialogue light. Yeah, in fact, I think the last 20 minutes of the film, there's no spoken dialogue at all, or almost none. Well, you've got that one girl in the dungeon saying, help me and no water. Right, and yeah, but I think, I think that's it for the last 20 minutes of the film. Yeah, what I found really funny about that is he, he gives her water thinking it's a person, and it turns out to be a machine, and the water still short circuits her. Yep. Even in the future, water, the most deadly thing to robots. Yep. And ba- I mean, basically, the plot is these robots go haywire. So we have an amusement park where the main attraction goes haywire. Gee, does that sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> and and it it's definitely there's there's this the the person who it's again kind of stereotypically who's warning, who's trying to warn people against what's going on. Hey, there's a problem. Hey, the robots seem to be having these these accelerated rates of failures and whatnot. And nobody wants to listen. Yeah. No, no, we're fine. We're fine. We can't shut it down. We're making too much money. Mm-hmm. And especially if, if you've read Jurassic Park versus just seen the film, John Hammond is very much in that vein. right? He, oh, yeah. He's, he's very much super different in the book than he is in the yeah, movie. Like, he is much more obsessed with, with making money and, and keeping the park open than he is with. And completely fooled by the illusion of control. Yes. Like, especially that's what that's his undoing in the book is he goes out for a walk. Yeah. Thinking like everything's under control. Yep. What I found interesting, and you probably noticed this, is kind of Westworld, you can see hints of future science fiction films that are now like staples today. Right? So the three that popped into my mind while while rewatching this, I'm certain were the three that popped into your mind, were obviously Jurassic Park, Terminator, and Blade Runner. Uh, Blade Runner didn't pop into my head while I was watching it, though. I can I can see where you're getting at. I mean, just the visual cues from Blade Runners with the glow in the eyes. Yes, absolutely. I'm not talking about the book. I'm talking about the film. No, 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 no. Yeah, absolutely. No, it like I said, it didn't occur to me. But when, as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, okay, yep, I see where he's going. And the Terminator one, uh, I also see that. It's funny because I, I was mean, watching. I, I found I finally found my copy of Yodorowsky's Dune, mm-hmm. and and one of the things they. they they attribute to having gotten taken from the Yodorovsky Dune book, like his Bible for the book is the, the first person kind of through the, through the robot's eyes look, except this predates that. Yeah. I was about to say, like we see that we even see like heat vision that we would have seen in the predator in 1984. When was predator? 83. Uh, let's look. Or later 80s. Maybe it was 87. But it was definitely in the 80s. Pre- 80s I have a feeling 87, it- actually. 87, okay. But no, it's funny, like I said, because 
Yodorowsky's doing the take credit for that, and it's like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, I guess I does what I didn't look up before starting to record was how popular the film was. You know, was it one of you know how like you've got these movies that are like big hits with audiences, and no one really cares about them, like, you know, some of the like the the late like later song and dance James Cagney films, sure. or you've got a movie like this that basically everyone in, you know, Hollywood, like the, the up and coming Hollywood bunch saw like that became their movie. I was curious where this one sat. And I don't, it's funny cause I don't remember ever having conversations about, you know, Westworld's uh, impact on, uh, cinema, but you could feel like there, it obviously has a lot of impact here. Yeah. At least it, it looks like it has a lot of impact. You don't know if it's like, coincidental or not yeah that's a good question and i'm not sure honestly just kind of take take a look i have i'm actually having a hard time pulling up any any legitimate numbers on it mm -hmm. uh i think it would probably take us a little while to to find some of that yeah. i mean i have to think it's at least at least had some influence just because you know, what it's a lot of the things we're seeing and again you know, Michael Crichton having written this, obviously you can tell there are themes in this book that he carries on into other works of his. Right. I mean, the basic themes you'd see, we've seen before, like we see them with like the George Romero films, yep. especially his later films, like, you know, technology is going to fail us. Science is going to fail us. Uh, we see that here with just these robots running amok. Uh, this isn't so much like an AI question, uh, or 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 conundrum that we get faced with in like certain Japanese anime films. This is really just robots. Their programming running amok. Yeah, he he has like an evolutionary explanation for it, but it's not dwelled on. Yeah, he he provides that that kind of explanation, and also, right, like the robots in this are not not autonomous. They're centrally controlled by this, these computers, mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of a, a distinction. And actually, something that it looks like the the new the new series is going away from is that they're actually, you know, self autonomous. Right. They're going to make them more of an AI rather than literally robots. Yeah. Because basically, Yul Brenner's gunslinger robot is, or android or whatever you want to call it, is following a program. Right. It was designed to like confront guests and be killed. Right. But the problem is it's doing exactly what its programming told it to do, except, you know, now it's like the safety is off. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of reminded me of uh, Star Trek with the holodeck safeties. Right. You know, in the beginning. And it was funny because I was thinking, you know, like they keep saying that the guest can't get hurt. What happens if another guest shoots like a guest shoots another guest? And then they like two minutes after I had that thought, they addressed it. Right, I had the same feeling too. <laughs> what I thought was really funny was towards the end where Yul Brenner is doing his T-1000 thing, was basically relentlessly pursuing uh, Richard Benjamin through the through the maze of the underground uh, facility, and he pulls out his gun to shoot him, and then he looks, and it's like battery low. <laughs> that was hysterical. I was like, what? <laughs> but, Battery-powered guns with bullets. But you're, but you're shooting bullets. Right. <laughs> Do the bullets really... require batteries? Little, little tiny, I... tiny batteries. That would confuse me. I was like, okay, that's. I'll, I... I'll give him that one. Yeah, I mean, I think that was just the, we need we need to to bring this to a close. Yeah, that was. <laughs> that was good. 
Speaking of uh, the gunslinger, I was, you and I were talking about this before we came on. Yul Brenner has to have like the best, had to have like the best fucking agent in in Hollywood at the time, because yeah. he's only got like ten lines of dialogue, and he got top right. billing. Right, and and well, ten lines of dialogue, but they're only like half of them are actually different. Right. And I mean, basically, they hired him for the face. I mean, he is oh, like yeah. the biggest star in the film, certainly at that time. Um, certain, this certain, is, well, certainly one of them. This is towards the end of his career, though. It's towards the end of his career, but 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 you have to keep in mind that he's already done movies like The King and I, and uh, Magnificent Seven. Oh, Actually, certainly. Multiple, the multiple Magnificent Seven films. Yes, many until of them. until he gets tired of them and Lee Van Cleef takes over. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, James Brolin wasn't quite the big star yet. At least I don't think he was. No, I don't think so. This is also fairly early on. Someone else who was in it, uh, the the lead scientist, the one who's really worried, is played by a guy named Alan Oppenheimer, who turns out to be a prolific voice actor. Oh, really? Did he did the voice of in He Man? Did the voice of Skeletor? <laughs> did a bunch? Did a bunch of Transformers? Did some voices in Ghostbusters? Yeah, I mean, if you if you look just scrolling down his his IMDb page, it's a ton of like Saturday morning mm-hmm. cartoons from the eighties right? that I, I mean, I never would have like realized this had I not gotten bored and looked through his, mm-hmm. th- through his IMDb page. But yeah, it's, it's a ton of stuff. What I also found interesting was the kind of the voyeuristic quality of the operators yeah. of the West world. So do you remember the movie cabin in the woods? Uh, I, n- I never actually saw it. So there's there's elements the, uh, the the thing behind Cabin in the Woods is that every horror cliche is real but it's just being run by a you know underground satanic or what you know pagan organization and uh, that that all the cliches that happen in horror movies are actually directed by people behind the scenes Interesting. It you'd like it cuz um uh the the dad from uh, talking... Step Brothers is in it, and the guy from West Wing is in it. Oh, Bradley Woodford's in it, yeah. Yeah, he's in it, and uh, it's it's interesting because you basically have the same setup here. Is you've got these operators in the background making sure that the robots are behaving the way they want them to, right? And they're like watching. You're basically watching the robot, like the guests fight the robots, and then the guests like fuck the sex bots, and then like that one part towards the end of the film was where the guy tries to seduce the the wench in medieval world, and they're like, hey. This wench didn't respond to the seduction. What's wrong? Yeah. Well, then there's time like you hear the the operators just kind of side conversations. Like one of them's ordering breakfast. I, I like that part. You see that in Cabin in the Woods too. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely see that nice. kind of like the nonchalantness of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's, overall, it's a really good. You know, it's not like a, an amazing film, but it's a good film, and it's certainly a very representative of its time. I think it's a solid sci-fi classic. I really do. Like, I think I think this one, if you talk about science fiction films, at least of the '70s, this yeah. one deserves mention. Oh, certainly. And it's it, the other thing I thought was interesting that we talked about the ending it being in about 20 minutes of silence. Mm-hmm. That's fairly indicative of films of that time, even in oh, the, yeah, even definitely. in the late '70s. You think uh, Alien, for example. You know, the last 20 minutes or so of that film there's a little bit more dialogue and you get a little bit more of like the, because the computer's doing the countdown, 
but I mean, most of that film is almost in silence. The end of that film is in silence. Yeah, back in that time, this stuff kind of picked up in the late 60s and kind of played through up until the 80s was you'd have these just big shots, these big portrait shots where it was just super focused on the visuals so the audience can like take in what they're seeing. And it was a lot of it focused on the editing and the cross cutting. Uh, think about like the breathing that uh, Richard Benjamin does in the gorge. Yeah. To try and like, you know, all that kind of visual auditory stuff. You really don't see these days because now we're kind of in the age of like Michael Bay and J.J. Abrams. Where, so it's all these cross cuts and loud explosions and yeah. quick, quick, quick back and forth, back and forth, super close ups, all that kind of stuff. You don't see that today. No, and it's unfortunate, at least at least in American cinema. Yeah, although I haven't really been up on the Western, uh, on, the, on the foreign stuff to tell you. if. if no, I, just, I, I do remember when we were more into it in college that that was a, that was a complaint about American cinema that, that we didn't have with with the foreign cinema with Asian cinema specifically. Well, specifically Asian cinema. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They, they really enjoy the long shot much better than the Americans do. Yeah. And I, it's just something about our attention span has changed that that kind of stuff, people don't want to sit through that. Yeah. So, so we think of like the beginning of once upon a time in the West where it's, how long does it go before first word is spoken? Oh, so, I, mean, I mean, minutes? I mean, West or once upon a time in the West is 15 is, is a 15 page script for a three hour movie. Right. Written by seven people. Yep. I mean, it's just... It's, I mean, big timers, too. Oh. Like, not, like, not lightweight. No, 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 not at all. Yeah, but, it's But still... getting back to Westworld, I, I think... I, it's funny, I did see this in college, and I almost completely forgot about it. Yeah. Like, it basically blended in with all the other Westerns that I had seen. And I was, like, watching kids, like, oh, I remember that. Oh, this is this is great. Well, it's, it's it's another one of those things. They take all of the all of the tropes from both from some ah. <laughs> that makes you want to take that one again? Yeah, I'll try that again. Relax, folks. He'll be fine. It's like one of those one of those news clips you watch, and suddenly they just can't talk, and they start cursing nowhere. God, God damn it, son of a bitch! And I was thinking where like they almost have like aphasia, where they just start talking gibberish. <laughs> like you're like oh shit, they think they just had a stroke. I like the one like the weather guy who just starts cursing up a storm. Nice. No, I was gonna say, not only do you get the science fiction tropes, you also get the Western tropes. It's very, oh, yeah, it's very much not just not just a science fiction film, but it is also very much a Western. Oh yeah, and they blend it like seamlessly, perfectly. almost. Yeah. Because it, I guess, the idea is it's it's self aware, like similar to Cabin of the Woods, or so. Well, at least it's self aware of the Western tropes because yeah. you can see the guys designed it to be that. You, oh yeah. You, you talk smack in the bar. Uh, you you gotta shoot someone. You got the the brothel down the street. The over right? the That's top bar fight. Over the top bar fight. I mean, the the best part is it is like, all right, let's cue the bar fight. Like they had it ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and, right? and at, at the point where all all of the guests are just cracking the fuck up and throughout the whole thing. Right. There's just no there's no threat to it. Yeah. I would have I would have loved to have seen what Roman world. All right, let's cue the orgy. Right. Ready to go. We're ready to do our Caligula phase. I was going to ask, like, which of the three worlds would you want to visit? Oh, Roman world, without even, like, a doubt. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Roman world, like, without a doubt. Look, look I'm not disagreeing with you. Not at all. medieval world, medieval world and western world, people are just dirty. Right? Roman world, at least they take baths. This is true. I mean, you know, I it's, mean it's supposed to be, supposed to be the, the height of Pompeii. Right. So, I'm 
I've, I've watched a bunch of documentaries about Pompeii. I'm all about <laughs> revisiting Pompeii. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm all about that. Yep. No, the, I would agree with you. Part. That's that's pretty. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, if I can relive the Roman era without having to, like, you know, die, fight the wars, fight the wars, die of the plague, dying volcanic explosions. Yeah, I all mean, that stuff. yeah. If you the, the Romans without the bad stuff, like, I just saw because there, there was a lot of bad week. shit. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff. I don't want to do that. That sucks. <laughs> Crucifixions. Uh, lots bad. of battles, revol- war, rebellions. Revolts, looting, pillaging, raping, Messiah's prop <laughs> popping up like weeds. I don't want to do that. Yeah, no. Nice. I'll just stick to the baths. <laughs> I'll just I'll stick to the baths. It'll be really clean. I want my Roman world to look more like History of the World Part Two. <laughs> part one. Part that one. one. Yeah. Part, I want that one. It's good to be the king. Yeah. <laughs> I learned something interesting about that. Did okay. you know that? We, I have to look this up because I, I heard someone say this. I forgot where that the, the palace of Versailles didn't actually have bathrooms. Like people hmm. would piss in the staircases in, in, in the stairwells I mean, and stuff. It, you know, under certain like certain French kings, I could see that. Yeah, I forgot where I heard that. But then it was that scene in History of the World Part One where he's like bucket for monsieur and he like pees in the bucket. Apparently that wasn't far off. I can believe that. Apparently that was not far off. I thought that was really when I heard that I went, "Oh man, if that's true, that's yeah. that's true." I, I've wanted to be true so much. So so get, get back to the topic though. What what were your thoughts when you heard that they were making a Westworld series? I was all on board, but I, I did a little bit of research on it, so I'm a little trepidatious because I think this would be a fantastic miniseries. And reading quotes from the showrunners, they want to make this like a five, six year thing. Right. Yeah. So, so there have definitely been comparisons to Game of Thrones on this. Sure. Because uh, again, because now, you know, in 1973, we were still kind of tame in some of the movies we were trying to make. Right. Like now it's like we've got we've got fuck bots right now. So uh, that's got to be explored. Oh, and it, and it will be. Yeah, I'm certain of it. I mean, my first reaction was like, really? Westworld? Like, is it, yeah, it had been a while since I'd seen the film. Mm-hmm. And then now having rewatched the film and looking into it more, I mean, I'm, I'm on board. I'm like, like you, I'm kind of curious as to how they're going to do an extended series with the show. Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, like, they're gonna have to... uh, t- 10 episodes. I can, I can absolutely see how they're going to do in 10 episodes, how they're going to try and, give this longevity i'm really curious i mean we have to talk about the cast to this new film like so the 1973 film was basically a cast of like unknowns with the exception of maybe brenner and even today looking back on it you've got yule brenner uh james brolin and then you know a bunch of like well-known character actors that we recognize like dick van patten and uh gene roddenberry's wife uh what's her name again barrett uh marjorie barrett uh but this cast, it's it's Anthony Hopkins, Ed Harris, Evan Rachel Wood, Jeffrey Wright, Tessa Thomas, like these. James Marsden. These are people, yeah, these people are big. No, yeah, this so will like, this will be a really interesting cast. I mean, I uh, think you know Anthony Hopkins and Ed Harris. Ed Harris might stick around. Anthony Hopkins, I think you know we're gonna see him die in the first season, 
kind of like, yeah. you know, Game of Thrones style with with um, Sean, Sean Bean. <laughs> when you get an actor of that caliber, you know, they're only on it for, they're only into it for a short period. Well, yeah, an, allegor- an actor of that caliber, but also an actor of like, all right, I've kind of done my thing. I'm done. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Ed Harris may, may stick around because I can't think of anything recently worthwhile that Ed Harris has done. I'm looking at his IMDb page. Well, like the only two things I can think of were History of Violence and uh, Appalachia. The yeah. Western, he did Hugo Mortensen, but that was maybe 10 years ago. I mean, he's done a number of things. Uh, Snowpiercer, he was in. Oh, the, the the train movie? Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things. I still have not watched that. Neither have I. Yeah, looking through it, yeah, I think Appaloosa's probably in 2008 probably okay i mean he's done a lot uh, he's done a lot of stuff in there almost none of it's ringing a bell right uh pain and gain that was that stupid i I want to see that though it looked stupid but i was all on board with the stupidity yeah i mean i was one of i remember reading an article about that one where it was like yeah you know they made this into a comedy oh by the way the two main characters are in jail because they fucking murdered a dude. When they, <laughs> yeah. Cause like the, they, tr- they tried this once, once it went badly. They tried it again and they ad- ended up killing a dude. Yeah. It's like, that's the perfect movie for Marky Mark and, and the rock. Yeah. So, I mean, but, I'm, I'm excited though. HBO doing this. Yeah. I just think right now, as far as like premium, premium cable stuff goes, like, right now it's far more interesting than what's going on in the cinema. I mean, I just, we got to talk about the, the, what happened over the summer at some point. We really do. Yeah. Well, I'm saying that's, that's, that's far more interesting. And also I think, I think HBO or like, this is, this is the kind of channel that, that can do this kind of science fiction. They they want to, that's the thing is there's a drive to, and they they can take that chance. Yeah. And I think, I mean, honestly, I think we're going to get some, well, you know, we're going to get sex and violence and all that stuff. I think we're actually going to get some of the moral conundrums that you and I want in science yes. fiction. No, I think so. I mean, I like it was kind of funny. So I was reading one of the articles on this and one of these showrunners, uh, Lisa Joy, says, you know, or I think it was Lisa Joy. So, you know, when I play Grand Theft Auto, I'm such a nerdy little uh, law abider because I've always had this active imagination, which I sympathize and empathize with things. When other people turn off the game, they don't think, oh, my goodness, I just ran over four pedestrians. How terrible. I wonder if their family has health insurance. I wonder if their family has health insurance. So, I mean, that's really interesting is, you know, when we play video games, like I've been playing TIE Fighter for the last two weeks. Um, I think I've shot down like 400 spacecraft. Right. Like, obviously, you know, those aren't real pilots. Uh, Same thing with Grand Theft Auto. When you play it, they kind of look like people, but we know they're just sprites. When we get into the realm of, you know, androids and robots that look like people and are designed to act like people, right. those moral intuitions really start to change, even though they truly aren't any different from, you know, the pilots in TIE Fighter. Right. Well, there's that. And also, I mean, just going back to Star Trek, something Star Trek certainly delved into in, in The Next Generation. What's the definition of alive? Sure. Right. At what point do these robots are they considered alive? Are they, you know, are they sentient? Are they, are they just tools? You know, at what point are they alive? At what point are they not? And I think that's depending on how they play that. It's going to be a very interesting 
dynamic to the show. Oh, I agree. And I think, you know, this is something Japanese anime has been dealing with like forever. Like with, um, they did Metropolis recently or like, 10 years ago and then Ghost in the Shell 20 years before that. But throughout much of like, especially Japanese anime, it's like that question of robot sentience, android sentience, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's always been a really big question. Yeah. I'm trying to find... The girl sent me a short movie. Oh, here it is. The iMom. About... Uh, it's a short movie that's kind of germane to this discussion about uh, maids that are, you know, anthropomorphic, you know, android maids that help child-rearing. And kind of has the same process that Westworld goes through. It's like they're really, really great until something just a little bit goes goes wrong. Right. And I would recommend it. I saw it on uh, Vidmeo. And well, I'll post it in the show notes. But the iMom is what it's called. It's, it's about 10, 15 minutes worth watching. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll uh, yeah, make sure that makes its way into the show notes. And then I'm also kind of thinking the Westworld, the movie didn't do this, but maybe Westworld, the show will, will kind of go, uh, the movie, the AI, the, the, that route, the AI route, where you've got a character who kind of wants to be treated as human, believes it's human. Yeah, I suspect that, that uh, Rachel Evan, Evan Wood's character will, will, will be that part, just based on some of the trailers and stuff and the conversations they allude to her having with Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, and also, like, Ed Harris looks like he's going to be similar to that character from Blade Runner. What was his name? The main baddie from Blade Runner. I can't remember his name now. Crud. Oh, I'm drawing a blank. The too. one who didn't want to die. You know who I'm talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about. I can't remember his name. But I just, like, I felt that that similarity. Probably because Blade Runner was you're on my talk, mind. It's Rucker Howard's character. Yes, yes, but I can't remember the name of the character. Roy. Roy, thank you. God, that was going to bother me. I can imagine like some of the listeners going, it's Roy. It's Roy. Just say Roy. It's Roy. Guys, it's Roy. Just edit the Why didn't you edit this part out? It's Roy. Roy. Yes, yes. Rucker Hauer plays Roy. Roy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He plays Roy. You idiots. That happens. But yeah, for, so, for those of us who haven't, uh, who haven't seen this, and again, I hadn't seen it in years. I kind of took it for granted. I would suggest you can find, you, you can find it on Amazon. Yep. Buy it for six bucks. It's yeah. absolutely worth it. It is really a worth. I mean, especially if you're a fan of science fiction, this is like the quality science fiction that I don't. I don't feel like we see much enough anymore. No, it's it, we're really kind of missing this. Yeah, but it's, it's it is, definitely worth it. It makes me feel good that we're gonna at least get it on HBO. That that's that that's where it's all going. It's obviously not in the cinema anymore. Yeah. And then again, I haven't seen Nerve. I do want to see that. I thought that that actually looked like it had an interesting premise to it, but it might have been a shitty execution for all I know. Yeah, we've had a, we've had a few of those where you're like, "Oh, this looks really cool," and you're like, "Yeah, you yeah. just didn't stick the landing there." No, like the one with um, Ryan Gosling, or what was it Ryan Reynolds, where he switches bodies with Ben Kingsley last year. Oh, I don't think see? I saw that one. No one, yeah, no one saw it. It's okay. <laughs> it's fine. It did make an impact. I mean, one that one that was. I mean, this was years back years ago, back in when we were in college, for like ten years ago. And it was Sunshine. 
Yeah, was that like, was another one that people had a problem with that. Yeah, landing. I was just like, oh, this is really good, this is really good, this is really good. And then the last 10 minutes, it turned into a slasher film. And I was like, you fucks. What's going on here? I actually walked out of the movie and just paced angrily up and down the the um, the lobby of the theater and then went back in. Yeah, I mean, at least you, at least you didn't walk all the way out. Well, I was poor and I was in college and it took me 45 minutes to get to the movie theater. I was like, God damn it, I'm not wasting the, the, the time and effort and money that I put into getting here to yeah, not I finished see this goddamn end. film. I don't care. Right. See, out of college, I, I had no problem walking out of Avatar. I was like, nope, I'm done. I don't need to see this. I am finished. And then you went home and played uh, Dawn of War for about five hours. Dawn of War 2, five hours. I mean, that was five hours. Then I went to bed and woke up and did the whole thing over again. I think that was actually still the, I think that was still the original Dawn of War. I was done a war too. Was it okay? Yeah, I was. I was. I don't think it was Chaos Rising, but yeah, I definitely played that one to the hill. I'm so pumped about Dawn of War three. I'm so pumped. <laughs> All right. So, what have so, you been into this week? All right. So, I saw a bunch of. I'm still trying to finish uh, Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell, and it's interesting because now that I'm getting, I've got maybe three, four chapters left, and. It's interesting. The book is clearly in three parts now that I'm seeing and now that I'm getting deeper into it is the first part is life in the working class or life of the working class in northern England. That's the first chunk of the book is it's just a dictate. He just tells you what their lives are like. This is the homes they live in. These are the jobs they have. This is what they do in the job. This is how much they pay in rent, how much they pay for food. It's very categorical. It's very meticulous. Statistical. Yeah, I mean, it's super, super into that. And then the second half, the next middle chunk, is him going through, like, the cultural difference between North and South, between between the, the people of Yorkshire and the people of, like, London. That's and he goes through how they behave, how they act, how one sees the other, all that kind of stuff. And then the last third of the book, I'm not finished, but he, he kind of, like, he telegraphs his punch, and he talks about, because, you know, we, we, I think most people don't know that Orwell was a socialist. It was an avowed socialist. And in the book, he tries to describe how he thinks socialism will work for the working class and why people are not going for it. And it's interesting as he starts with, first, let's go through the problems of socialism. And I haven't gotten to, so he's going through all the big arguments against it. And what's really funny is most of his problems are with, socialists themselves he's like the first problem with socialism socialists and he just he goes down the list of like how who they are what class they're from how they behave how they treat others and he just basically goes through how douchey they are nice so it's it's really uh really an interesting book and there like i said earlier there i found at least two um connections to 1984 particularly in the middle of the book where he refers to how the working class get easily distracted by gambling and horse racing and going to the pub and all that kind of stuff. And he says, you know, one would suggest that the government and politicians do this on purpose to distract the working class from the conditions they're really in. And then he says, having met government officials, I do not attribute them the intelligence to pull this off. <laughs> right but in 1984 there is a part of the book where he's clearly saying that there's a lottery 
that exists and that there's the, the pubs still exist, the proletariats drink beer. And in 1984, Winston clearly states that that is a design of the government, particularly the lottery, where he says, you know, everyone, all the proletariats play the lottery, but no one in London wins. Everyone who's ever won the big jackpot is from somewhere else. And he goes, probably the case in that somewhere else, they're being told someone in London has won the big jackpot. So there's these... In yeah, there's these interesting connections in the book. And other than that, I saw four movies last weekend. I'm, I'm trying to play catch-up. I can see these for free because they've been out a little while. Uh, Pete's Dragon, Kubo and the Two Strings, War Dogs, and uh, Ben-Hur. And they were all pretty good. Pete's Dragon was just kind of okay. Just, you know, just I, was never, okay. I was never a big fan of Pete's Dragon as a kid anyways. Neither was I. I'm just a really big fan of um, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah. She's adorable in this so that was nice and Kubo and the Two Strings however if you've got a young son this is like the perfect boy adventure story it is really fa I mean kids will like it I think adults will like it anyway but this is like one of those classic boy adventure stories where it's like an adolescent boy going on an adventure and fighting monsters and ghosts and all that kind of stuff Okay. It's it's really 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 good, and the animation it's kind of like a stop motion animation style. Yeah. Uh, set in Japan, it's really good. Okay. I would highly recommend it. And then I saw War Dogs, which I enjoyed immensely. I like Miles Teller. I like Jonah Hill. <laughs> I sense some hesitation. I sense some hesitation in that. I like it. Statement. Well, I like it because I have a feeling Tracy, if she were here, be really mad if I said that. Because it is a really funny movie about these guys who kind of figure out how to work the system. And, you know, of course, greed catches up with them. Sure. But it, in the movie, I found it really hard to feel bad for them. I mean, like, to be outraged. Because to me, they just were inventive. And what, what, what busts them is that they just don't, they don't pay enough hush money to the right guy. And that's what, what kind of screws them over is that greed. Uh, so that was I enjoyed that I, I I liked it and finally I saw Ben Hur and that was just okay yeah. like why did we need to remake this is a bunch of nobodies except for Morgan Freeman the chariot racing scene was kind of cool critics really piled on to the movie like I read some of the IMDb snippets on it yeah and it just the negative response people had to that film felt like just really vapid platitudes that they just wanted to dump on the film and then all these other critics started piling on did, and did, the, did, it, did it feel like they were making negative comments purely because it's a remake of ben-hur partially yes but i think they also were making negative comments purely because other critics were making negative comments and then it just became the who can be more negative about this film interesting and it it was like, oh, you know, the editing is crap and the acting is crap and it's a manic, unconfused. Like it had its problems, but it was like it wasn't a mess. It was a fairly solid film that had problems. You know, had had weird issues to it. And the chariot racing scene was kind of cool. It's kind of like the pod racing scene in episode one. OK. Where the pod racing scene was pretty cool. The rest of the movie, kind of lame. Although I will say the battle sequence with Ben-Hur as a galley slave, that was pretty cool, too. Yeah, that like looked, at, felt, least, at least from the trailers, that looked pretty badass. No, that was pretty badass. Like, you were watching it go, God, I feel like I'm in this damn thing. 
I that. would not want to be a galley slave. <laughs> this, this is the part of Roman world I don't want to do. Right. This is so that was about it. Other than that, uh, I've been pretty low key. Nice. Let's see. Uh, the other night, Becky had some some painting and wine thing. So that's becoming, oh, shit. That's becoming popular. Yeah, it is. Uh, hers hers was Doctor Who themed. Of course. Well, so was the. Uh, People have seen the the Starry Night Doctor Who, the whole thing with Van Gogh. It was it was in that style, but anyway. So while she was gone, I was watching like a bunch of random television shows on uh, Hulu. So I watched the first episode of the new season of Superstore, which is still pretty funny. They I watched the first episode of Soul Survi- um Designated Survivor. How was that? So I liked the okay. first well, no, no, no. So I liked the first episode. I'm not sure where the series is going. Like right. I, it, I, there are potential storylines that they're, that they're setting up, at least storylines that have the potential to be for me to just be like, ah, oh, I don't care anymore. Right. Uh, it, it could, I, I already sent, get the sense that it's going to turn into some like internal conspiracy by either like a general or something. Like that's already got, they're already setting up something because there's, there's no, no particular enemy or terrorist group claims credit for the attack. And it's very obviously meant to look like a, a Muslim terrorist group. Mm-hmm. But there's, of course, there's the one FBI agent who is looking deeper into it because that's how this always goes. Yeah. So, I mean, like certain parts are cliche. Keith, Kiefer Sutherland's, Acting is very, very good in it, though. Like, I, I was kind of, like, standing by waiting for, like, 24. Yeah, like, I was waiting for that Kiefer Sutherland to come out. Yeah. And it's not. He's he's His character is very mild-mannered, very much in over his head. You know, basically, he, like, as the designated survivor, he's, he's the, the HUD secretary, Housing and Urban Development Secretary. So he is nowhere in the realm of competent to be the president of the United States. Like he just, he's not, he's somewhere, he's in the line, but you know, he's at the bottom of, he's literally at the bottom of the line of succession. And he very, Kiefer Sutherland very much plays the character that way where he, he's not at all prepared for this and he has to do it. Mm. And I think that was, that was very well done. Um, Aside from that, I caught this show called In Between on Netflix. Yeah. Like, the girl was watching some stuff. She likes to put just random stuff on. And it's about uh, a virus that gets released in a town or some sort of illness that affects a town that kills everyone over the age of 22. Hmm. And the uh, show's awful. Like, the few episodes <laughs> that I watch, it's, it's just impossible to watch. Nice. It is truly unbearable. And then she, we watched some or Netflix original, I can't remember the name, like APX, AQX, A something like that. And, oh, uh, it's a time I travel. S- I saw that. I didn't actually watch it. It's also fairly uh, irritating. Yeah. And I, I didn't really stick watching that one. And what else? We watched the documentary Hot Girls Wanted from last year. Kind Who of was like that? The... I kind of wanted to watch that. So... So this is interesting. We could do a whole episode on on this because here's my main problem with 
documentaries, particularly quote unquote anti porn documentaries, is they never, especially ones that come from the left as opposed to like the ones that come from the right, because there's kind of two directions on this. Sure. And this one I sensed came from the left. They never come out and out and say anything concrete. Like, they don't, they never says, this is bad because this, here's why. Right? It's never that clear. It's, doesn't this look awful? Maybe we should do something. Gee, I wonder what that is. Right? It leaves a lot to the imagination. And you, you walk away going, well, that was kind of pointless. Yeah. Right? Because was, that was really just kind of it. It was like, oh, look at the lives these people lead. This is bad. And they'll drop these little things in there like, oh, the, the industry is mostly unregulated. So I'm sitting there going, are you saying we should regulate it? What kind of regulations are you saying? Why do you think? You know, I'm sitting there asking these questions sure. to myself. And the documentary never goes near it. It really feels like a really extended version of MTV's True Life except real yeah you know, it's funny you yeah. say when you, when you say true life not being real uh, a friend of my sister's was actually one of the one of the people on true life and holy crap was that made up <laughs> yeah like, so it, really like in to an impressive extent oh was it oh yeah oh like even even the basic premise of what she wanted to be it was like true life. I want to be a. I want to be a uh, like a white rapper or something. It was. I remember that episode. Is that the one who raps at the old folks' home? I think so. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's been a long, long time since so it was a f- female. Yes. It was yep. A blonde girl. Uh, I don't remember what color hair she had at the time. Um, but yeah, change. I mean, it was, it was really like the entire thing was put on. Oh wow! Yeah. No, this obviously wasn't put on, right. but it felt like it just it felt had that feel of that episode. And really, all I did was walk away with five new chicks I got to look up on Pornhub. That's really <laughs> all I walked away with this film. was like, I got to look these five up. Oh, man. So that was and, – and I watched uh, – Rashida Jones has an uh, interview on Vice because Rashida Jones is the producer of this. This is mm-hmm. Quincy Jones' daughter. She's in the office in Parks and Rec, and yeah. she did I Love You, Man. She's one of the producers, and she does a Vice interview about it. And she at least gets to a little bit more of a coherent – argument stance yeah but this is not the kind of andrea dworkin type rhetoric that we saw in the 80s it's sure. not that it's much more vague that was kind of my main problem it has like one and a half stars on netflix but it is an interesting watch okay so that's that's basically it for me yeah all right folks if you like what we do make sure that you head on over to thereforegeek.com check out our blog posts on our podcasts you can find us on facebook on instagram and on twitter And you can find this podcast and other podcasts like it on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and YouTube. YouTube. So once again, I'm Andrew. And I'm twiddling my hair. I'm Dude. (laughs) And you've been listening to Therefore I Geek.